Last week, we began a new series of messages on what the Apostle Paul calls the fruit of the Spirit. And we gave ourselves a general introduction to the subject and looked at them broadly together. But starting today, for the next several weeks, we will be breaking them down, looking at each of the fruit that are named one by one. Now, you will notice right away that the very first fruit that is named in Galatians 5.22, and we'll look at it later, is love. And it's appropriate that that would be named first. However, we're going to skip over that one and come to it last. Because for reasons that I think will become obvious later, love is the one that ties them all together. So today we're going to move to what is actually the second on the list. But as a way of setting ourselves up for that, let me encourage you to join me in two different scripture readings. We're going to look first at the words of our Lord Jesus in the 16th chapter of John's Gospel. Uh, like much of the latter portion of John's gospel, these words come from the final uh, words that Jesus speaks to his disciples on the night that they are together as he is to soon be arrested. There's a lengthy prayer that Jesus offers for his disciples and some other words that he shares with him. And, and so these are amongst the final things that Jesus has to say to those who have been following him. And so we come to John chapter 16, beginning in the 16th verse, Jesus says this, Jesus went on to say, in a little while you will see me no more, and then after a little while you will see me. At this, some of his disciples said to one another, what does he mean by saying, in a little while you will see me no more, and then after a little while you will see me, and because I am going to the Father. They kept asking, what does he mean by a little while? We don't understand what he is saying. Jesus saw that they wanted to ask him about this. So he said to them, are you asking one another what I meant when I said, in a little while you will see me no more, and then after a little while you will see me? Very truly I tell you, you will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. You will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. A woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come, but when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy that a child is born into the world. So with you. Now is your time of grief. But I will see you again and you will rejoice and no one will take away your joy. In that day you will no longer ask me anything. Very truly I tell you, my Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. Until now, you've not asked for anything in my name. Ask, and you will receive, and your joy will be complete. And then over in the book of Galatians, the fifth chapter, the passage that will be our point of focus for these several weeks together, the Apostle Paul says in Galatians 5, Verse 22, and I read just one piece of it. But the fruit of the Spirit is 
joy. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be unto God. <clears throat> so we, <clears throat> we begin with an honest question. Does God want us to be joyful and happy? I think I've shared with you before a passage out of my favorite novel, To Kill a Mockingbird by Harper Lee. There's this wonderful exchange that takes place early in the book in which one of the neighbors is talking to Scout, one of the, the main characters in the story, and she's talking about her experience with a group of religious fundamentalists who live in their community, and she calls them foot-washing Baptists. And, and the abiding characteristic of the foot-washing Baptists is not the fact that they wash one another's feet, it's that they have come to believe that anything that's a joy is a sin. That God wants us to be serious and somber all the time. Now, there's a part of us that is repulsed by that. We, we don't want to believe that's true. We, we want to take Jesus at his word when he says that I came that you may have joy and that your joy may be complete. And yet, the truth of the matter is that the religious life is a serious thing. We deal with weighty matters here. We deal with subjects like heaven and hell and life, and death, truth, falsehood. Is it possible to deal with such significant, weighty things and still have a sense of joyfulness about it? The, the Christian writer Frederick Buechner says somewhere that if you were to stop and think about the moments in your life when you truly experienced joy, if you were just in your mind go to a time or place when you were truly joyful, you would probably find that it came in moments when you weren't doing anything that was overtly religious. Mention the word religion and you think of religious activities like sitting in a worship service or reading your Bible or going on a mission trip things that the world would recognize as religious activities. But when you think of joy, you probably think of things that are naturally pleasing, things that you just enjoy doing. A walk on the beach, a drive in the mountains, dinner with a friend you haven't seen in a while, a hug from a grandchild, time spent in a favorite pastime that just brings pleasure to you. And so Beekner goes on to say that it would appear, at least on the surface, that joy and religion not only don't have anything to do with each other, but that they're actually polar opposites of one another. But if the Bible is to be believed, exactly the opposite is true. The spiritual life, the religious life, life with Jesus and Joy are not separate things, but are actually one and the same thing. If you've got a Bible concordance at home, or if not, you can go online and look one up. Just type in the word joy to see all the places where it appears in the Scriptures, and you'll find over 240 references. It's a lot of joy in a book that's supposed to be about somber and serious things. So, so somehow or another, joy and spirituality are directly connected to each other. And that becomes crystal clear in Galatians chapter 5. As we saw last week, 
Uh, these are Paul's attempts to express what happens to us when the Holy Spirit comes to dwell in us. When we surrender our lives to Jesus Christ and declare that He is both Lord and Savior, then He places His Holy Spirit in us. That means something about God's nature and God's character becomes implanted in us, and then it flourishes over time if we give it the proper attention. And one of the characteristics of that new life that the Holy Spirit brings us is joy. Joy is one of the fruit of the Spirit. And so in other words, not only is it okay for us to experience joy, we are supposed to experience joy. If there is no joy in our lives, it's a clear signal that something is wrong, that spiritually something needs to change. But of course that raises the million dollar question, how does that happen? How do we get it? Where do we find joy? If, if God intends for us to have it, where does it come from? How do we connect our life with Jesus to the joyful experience that Scripture says we are supposed to have? Well, to answer that question, it would be helpful to go back and look at all the times and places where joy is discussed in the Scriptures. But like I said, there's over 240 of them and we don't have time to do that this morning. But if we looked at them as a whole, I think there are at least three broad categories we can identify that have to do with connecting joy with our walk with the Lord. There may be more than three that we could come up with, but three in particular I want to share with you this morning to put our joyful experiences on a strong biblical foothold. So first, it's obvious in Scripture that joy is experiential. Let me explain what I mean by that. Joy is not simply an abstract concept that we are invited to ponder, but rather joy is something that we are invited to actually experience. Joy is the response that God's people have to actual events in their lives. Joy is a tangible response to tangible ways that God makes His goodness known. We don't just think about joy, we actually experience experience joy. You've probably all heard at some point the common distinction that is made between joy and happiness. That, that happiness has to do with circumstances and so therefore happiness comes and goes but that joy is rooted in something more deep and therefore is more abiding and doesn't ebb and flow with the constantly shifting circumstances of our lives. And that distinction is fair and it is true and it is helpful. Joy is more permanent than mere happiness. But a word of caution is in order. We shouldn't be too quick to disassociate joy from the actual circumstantial experiences of life. Because if joy is not connected in some real way to the real good that we actually experience, then we run the risk of turning joy back into just another abstract concept that we sit and ponder. If you look at Scripture, joy is anything but abstract. To the contrary, joy is what the people experience and it's what they express when they receive something good from God. When God intervenes in their lives in tangible, measurable, concrete ways, the people respond with joy. It's because the God of the Bible is not an abstract concept. 
He's not a philosophical idea. He's a living presence who is actively involved in the world and in the lives of his people. He is a God who reveals himself through actual events that happen in historical time. And when that happens, when, when God brings good into the world, God's people rejoice. Think of the Hebrew people who spent hundreds of years languishing as slaves in Egypt. And in their misery, they cried out to God. And though it took much longer than anybody would have wanted, in God's time, He came and set them free. He sent Moses to lead them out of slavery into the promised land. And in the books of Leviticus and Deuteronomy, the people were commanded, get this, they were commanded to hold festivals. That is to say, to have a party. To celebrate the fact that God had done something amazing for them. He had set them free, and their response was joy. They experienced it. They expressed it. In 1 Samuel chapter 18, the people are threatened by the Philistines, represented in the giant Goliath. God sends a young shepherd boy, David, wonderful story, who goes and does battle with the with the giant and, and kills him and the people are suddenly set free and we read that the people rejoiced. Why? Because God had done something to set them free. In the book of Esther, the Jewish people are facing the threat of elimination because of an evil scheme, but then God intervenes through Queen Esther and the people are spared and we read that the people rejoice. In the book of Nehemiah, the people returned from exile after 70 years of being in captivity in Babylon, and they come to find Jerusalem in ruins. But then Nehemiah undertakes a great project to rebuild the city wall, and when it was finished, the people rejoiced. Why? Because God had done something good, something observable, something tangible. Over and over again, God's people experienced the real good in which God moved through their lives to bring about real change. When that happened, the people rejoiced. Joy is what we experience when God makes His goodness and His providential care known to us. A sickness is lifted. A strained relationship is restored. A crisis is averted. A gesture of kindness and generosity comes our way. A moment of beauty is experienced. We need to get in the habit of recognizing the good things that God brings into our lives and then learn how to respond to them with joy. Because according to Scripture, these good things are not random, they are not accidental, they are not mere strokes of good luck, they are signs of God's goodness. Psalm 38 says it clearly, taste and see that the Lord is good. With our senses we experience the goodness of God, and when we do, we respond in joy. Now clearly, not everything we experience in life is joyful. Life is filled with sadness and tragedy, and Jesus was honest about that with his disciples. He said, look guys, some bad's getting ready to come your way. 
you are about to go through a season of grief. And we need a faith that's broad enough and deep enough to embrace the tragic side of life as well as the happy. That's why over 70% of the Psalms are expressions of lament or grief or anguish. We need to be able to be honest when things aren't good. And following Jesus does not require that we pretend like everything's good when it's not. But here's the thing. Even in those moments of hardship, even when struggle and grief comes our way, even then, God still finds ways to make His goodness known to us. Psalm 23 is one of the most beloved and well-known passages of Scripture in the Bible. David speaks honestly about those moments when we walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Acknowledging that grief and tragedy is an inescapable part of life. And yet the psalm ends by declaring, Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. Now, Either those words are true, or they're not. Either God's goodness really does go with us, even in the valley of the shadow, or they don't. And if we believe that they do, that they are true, then joy comes when we take account of the ways that God makes His goodness known. And so if we find that joy is lacking in our lives, maybe we need to stop for a moment and take account of all the ways that God has revealed His goodness and His kindness and His mercy to us, even today. Because joy is experiential. First and foremost, it is a tangible response to God's tangible goodness. Second, I think we can say it is clear in Scripture that joy is devotional. What I mean is this. Joy is the outworking of a devotional life that authentically seeks the presence of God. When we seek to be with God through prayer and worship, both individually and corporately, what we find is joy, because that brings us into God's presence. I've already mentioned the frequent expressions of grief that we find in the book of Psalms, so if nothing else, the Psalms give us a Permission to be honest about what we are experiencing and feeling. But here's what I find interesting. In the midst of that book, which contains so many expressions of lament and grief and anguish, there's also more expressions of joy there than anywhere else. Psalm 5 verse 11 says, Let all who take refuge in you be glad. Let them ever sing for joy. Psalm 19, verse 8 says, The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. Psalm 28, 7 says, The Lord is my strength and my shield. My heart leaps for joy, and I will give thanks to Him in song. Psalm 149, verses 4 and 5 say, The Lord takes delight in His people. Let the saints rejoice in this honor and sing for joy on their bed. Here's why that's relevant. The book of Psalm was Israel's prayer book. 
the words of the Psalms give, give voice to the prayers of God's people. And so this is the mystery into which prayer leads us. It is the mystery of God's abiding presence. We said that joy is experiential because God does good, but God does good because God is good. And a vibrant devotional life leads us into that goodness. Time spent in prayer and devotion brings us into His joyful presence. And it is joyful not simply because of what God does for us, but because of who God is. To be with Him is joy. That doesn't mean that every time we fold our hands in prayer or, or every time we read the Bible or every time we walk through the joys of the church that we're going to feel joyful. But it does mean that if we spend enough time seeking after God, then we will come to know a joy that really does transcend the constantly shifting circumstances of life. Because while the circumstances will change, God never does. And His abiding presence is a constant in our lives. In John chapter 6, Jesus says something very interesting. He says, I am the bread of life. Now notice that He does not say, I give you the bread of life. As though the bread of life was something separate from Him to which He has access and He can give it to us if we want it. Which would mean that the bread of life is more important than Jesus. And Jesus is only relevant because He gives it to us. But that's not what He says. He doesn't say, I give you the bread of life. He says, I am the bread of life. You see, Jesus is God in the flesh. And when we have Jesus, we will have as much of God as we will ever hope to have. If we're not careful, we can fall into the trap of thinking that the only reason we should come to God is because of what God can do for us, because of the gifts that God gives us, as though the gifts He gives us are more important than He is. Yes, God can heal us. Yes, God can rescue us from a problem. And sometimes He will. But the Bible gives us a different picture. The Bible teaches us to desire God for His own sake. Apart from what He does for us, we are to love Him for who He is. And it's through the presence of a, and the practice of a vibrant devotional life that we come to know what it means to be in that presence. Now, does that mean that if we don't pray, and if we don't read our Bibles, that God's going to punish us by taking our joy away from us, as is to say, you weren't religious enough, so therefore you can't be joyful. That's not what it means. That's a legalistic approach to the spiritual life, and that is not what the New Testament teaches. But it does mean that if we choose, we can cut ourselves off from the source of unending joy. It would be like languishing in thirst when there's a well nearby and we simply refuse to go to it. 
And so developing a disciplined devotional life will lead us regularly into the presence of God. Not simply because of what God does, but because of who He is. Simply being with Him. And it is there that we find true joy. Joy is experiential, but joy is also devotional. Finally, we would say this morning that joy, joy is prophetic. I say that because joy is a frequent subject in the prophetic writings of Scripture. Now, I mentioned the word prophecy and people's minds go in different directions because everybody has a somewhat different understanding of what we mean when we say that word. So let me, let me tell you what I mean when I use that word in this context. Let me give you a, a non-technical definition of prophecy. Prophecy is the announcement that God is not finished with us yet. Prophecy is the assurance that God still has something definitive to accomplish in our midst. It is the promise that God's plan is still unfolding. And in the fullness of His time, that plan will lead us to something good. In the Old Testament, that prophecy centered on the promise of a coming Messiah. God's people were languishing in exile. They had been hauled off to live in Babylon under a foreign power who did not know their God, and they longed for rescue. And it was during those long years that God began to speak to them with a promise. It was the promise of a coming redemption, a a hope that was still yet to be fulfilled, a, a hope that He was going to do something that they had not yet imagined that would bring about a change in their circumstances. And you and I know from looking back with hindsight now that the promise would be fulfilled in the sending of Jesus Christ. That's why in Luke chapter 1 we get this incredible encounter between Mary and her cousin Elizabeth, both of whom are pregnant. And Elizabeth, the mother of John the Baptist, says to Mary, the mother of our Lord, as soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Because already they were beginning to see the fulfillment of God's long-awaited promise. But while God's people waited for that promise to be fulfilled, the mere fact that the promise had been made was enough to prompt joy while they waited. Consider the words of Isaiah 35, verse 5. He says, to a people who were languishing in exile, he writes this. He says, the eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then the lame will leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. It's not here yet, but it is coming. Or a little later in Isaiah 51, when those same people did finally come home to their beloved Jerusalem and found it to be in ruins, the prophet said to them, the Lord will surely comfort Zion and will look look with compassion on all her ruins. He will make her deserts like Eden, her wastelands like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in her. It's not here yet, but it's coming. 
put it all together, it means that, that God's promise of a coming Savior was enough to inspire an authentic sense of joy. Joy in the assurance that despite their present circumstances, God had not abandoned them. God would still act to redeem them. When we move to the New Testament, that same promise holds. It is the promise that the same Jesus who once came as a baby will eventually come again as the reigning Lord of all creation. And when He does, in that moment, all of creation will be put to right and all those who have placed their trust in Him will rejoice in His presence for all eternity. It isn't here yet. But it's coming. Towards the very end of the Bible in the book of Revelation chapter 21, the prophet John hears these words being spoken from heaven. He says, now the dwelling of God is with men and he will live with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things passed away those words are a vision of God's new heaven and his new earth a realm in which everything is as God intends it to be in that world there won't be any more cancer in that world there won't be any more children torn from their parents arms by disease or tragedy in that world, there won't be any more lives crushed by addictive forces. In that world, there won't be any more racial division. In that world, there won't be any more broken families. In that world, there won't be any more heartache or sorrow because our God will have made everything new. It's not here yet, but it is coming. That promise alone is enough to inspire joy. So when we experience things that cause us pain and grief and distress, we can know in those moments that we are encountering something over which our Lord has already declared victory. While that won't necessarily change our circumstances in the immediate moment, we can even then still lean into the future that God is bringing to pass. The psalmist writes, weeping may remain for a night, but rejoicing comes in the morning. It's not here yet, but it is coming. Joy is experiential joy is devotional joy joy is prophetic so again we ask does God want us to experience joy can our walk with the Lord be connected with joy and the answer is not hopefully but absolutely God not only permits us to experience joy, He expects it. He desires it. 
Remember this, in the New Testament, the story of Jesus is called the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the word gospel literally means good news. The gospel is the announcement that Jesus has done for us what we could never do for ourselves. Namely, He has set us free from sin and death on our own. We are spiritually dead creatures who are cut off from God and destined to a life separate from Him. Not just now, but for all eternity. That is our natural state. And yet Jesus has come and changed all of that. By His cross, He has set us free from the curse of death. Through Him, we have been restored to a rightful relationship with the Father. We who were once dead are now alive. And the gospel message then is rooted in joy. It is given in joy. It is received in joy. That joy is experiential because it is grounded in the very real ways that God acts tangibly in our lives day by day. That joy is devotional because it leads us into His abiding presence which never changes though the circumstances of life will. And that joy is prophetic Because it is a sign to us that God is not finished with us yet. And so, let the people of God rejoice. Let's pray together. Father, it is so easy for us to be overcome by the darkness of this world. And the heaviness of our circumstances. And yet we trust that in the midst of even those things, you desire us to experience the joy that is ours in Jesus Christ. And so move among us this morning. Where hearts are are laden with grief, would you bring healing? Where, Where minds are clouded with confusion, would you bring clarity? Where spirits are weighed down by discouragement, Would you bring vision and joy? Oh God, lead us into the joy that can only be ours through you. Thank you for the promise and the presence of Jesus Christ, which alone makes that possible. We make this prayer in the name and for the sake of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. I often wonder if we really pay attention to what we sing. A lot of the hymns that we sing are so familiar to us, we just sort of click on autopilot. But notice how often words like joy and rejoice appear in the refrains of the words we sing together. Because that's what God desires us to do. We're going to do it here in just a moment. Rejoice, you pure in heart. That's us. Pure in heart, not because of our own efforts, but because of the cleansing of the Holy Spirit, which is given to us. If you're here this morning and and you've never experienced that because you've never given yourself to Jesus Christ, then, then as we sing, we would invite you to come forward. We'll pray with you as you begin that walk with Christ as your Lord and Savior. If you're needing a church home to connect with others who can help you find joy in the midst of your journey, we want to offer that to you. If there's something on your heart you just need to unburden yourself with, whatever it may be, if there's anything that needs to be shared publicly, I'll be down here at the front. But God has work to do 
in and among all of us. So my prayer is that as we sing, we will do as the words say and truly rejoice in him. Let's worship him together. Would you stand as we sing?